Today is Family Sunday, which means we're going to be all together all the time. So I'd like to speak to the kids first. Kids, uh, I have a question for you. Raise your hand if you have to ask permission from your parents to do certain things that you like to do. Raise your hand if you have to ask permission before you do certain things in your house. Okay. I hope to see my boys raising their hand because this is something we're working on in our house. We say it's always better to ask first. The answer might be no or it might be yes, but it's always better to ask. Now you might have noticed that in today's gospel story, even Jesus asked permission from his father for something he really wanted. Even Jesus had to ask his father about what he wanted. And he did this right before he died. This is in the Garden of Gethsemane. He prayed, Father, if it's possible, please let this cup pass from me. And you know what? God said no. Even Jesus, the perfect human, right, heard no from his Father. And then, this is amazing, but Jesus obeyed. Jesus obeyed his Father even though he got a disappointing answer. Now that's a good example for us of how to obey even when it's hard. But really, this story is telling us about more than that, more than Jesus' good example. Because the story is also about what Jesus went on to do. In obedience to his Father, Jesus went on to save the world, which was a really hard thing to do. What Jesus had hoped was that it could be less painful. If it's possible, let this cup pass for me. This is going to hurt Jesus knew, and he was hoping for a different way. But there wasn't another way, and so he did it, even though he knew it would be hard and that it would hurt. Now this next week is Holy Week, and we'll be spending some time together really thinking and talking about these hard things that Jesus did for us to save the world. How he washed the feet of people who would betray him, about how he gave his body and blood in the meal, but also on the cross. And how he ultimately had a battle with the powers of evil, sin, and Satan, and death. And then on Easter, next week, we'll celebrate his victory in the battle. So come back next week for that. Uh, but this week, I want you to hear the good news, that Jesus did a very hard thing for us, so that we can be with him forever. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you that we can call you Father, that you have brought us into your family and allowed us to share the same relationship that you shared with your son, Jesus. And I pray that you would send your spirit now to help us to understand this, to receive it, and to know how to live it. It's in his name we pray, amen. All right, grown-ups, that was your introduction, so we're going to jump right in. Today, as you've already heard, marks the beginning of Holy Week, which is an invitation to follow Jesus through his final week of life. And for Christians, let me just say, Holy Week is a chance to not only recall the events of his last days on earth, but also to rehearse them. In other words, Holy Week isn't a history lesson. And it's also not just a religious obligation, you know, something we do because we're supposed to. Holy Week is an opportunity to see Jesus up close on his journey to the cross, to get inside the story of Christ's passion 
as those who walk behind him as his disciples. And as we've touched on already, the story of Holy Week is actually quite sad. It's a story about betrayal, isolation, suffering, and death. This is heavy stuff. Heavy in the sense that it might even be triggering for you as it intersects with heavy, hard parts of your story. Holy Week is also heavy in the sense of it being implicating, right? It invites us to reflect on our guilt and to feel sorrow for our sin, our, our part in putting Jesus on the cross. Now, we tend to want to rush through stuff like this because, especially as Americans, we prefer to focus on the happy stuff. You know, so we like to rush through Holy Week and get to Easter. You know, get to the happy ending. Be forward-thinking. Um, focus on self-improvement, optimism. We're all about the power of positive thinking. But I encourage you not to rush through this week because here's the thing. It's precisely in the heaviness of Holy Week that we find a Savior who is strong enough to carry us. Not just the parts of us that we like to put forward, not just the parts of our stories that are easy or presentable, but the whole of who we are and what we've lived up to this point. This is what we claim every Sunday, right? When we send all of our problems to the cross of Christ. Because the cross is the only place in the world big enough to hold them all. Now, if you're here today and you've grown up believing that you can't bring your problems to church, that that's not part of what we're doing here together, then first of all, I want to say I am so sorry. I'm so sorry if you've ever felt disqualified from participating in this story because yours is too complicated or messy or raw or painful. That used to be me, actually. By the time I was a high schooler, my family had gone through significant loss and we were what was called a broken family. And my own response to that loss was also broken. And yet I lived in what I perceived to be a, a nice, squeaky clean evangelical world where everyone else was intact. They weren't, but I believed the lie and that gave it power over me. And I actually thought as a teenager, on some conscious level, I internalized a sense of unbelonging in the church and in the Christian story because I didn't fit the picture that I was seeing around me of these put together people with their put-together families and their nice put-together church clothes. Maybe you can relate to that. But what I learned as I got to know Jesus better, and actually through the ministry of some of those nice squeaky evangelicals, I learned that the messiness and pain of my own story is exactly where God can and wants to meet me. That he goes to the depths with me and for me. That he not only understands our pain and grief, but that he has been there too, and he has been raised. So I want to challenge you this morning to bring it. Bring your whole self and all of your junk to this story, because I promise you are not going to weigh it down. Instead, it will lift you up. That's the invitation of Holy Week. And I think there's no better place to start the journey than in the Garden of Gethsemane. This place that Jesus prays in anticipation of all that's about to come. It's what New Testament scholar Joel Green calls the watershed of the whole passion narrative. 
showing us what to expect in the coming days and why. But I think it also shows us something of what to expect for our own lives as followers of Jesus. In other words, if we understand what's happening in the garden, we will understand the whole of Christ's passion and the shape of our life in him. So that's where we're going. But to get there, we need to set the stage for this moment. So we're just a few days after the triumphal entry, right? When the adoring crowds of Palm Sunday have forgotten Jesus and his own disciples are about to betray him. Jesus has just celebrated the Last Supper with them where he offered himself in the bread and the wine, where he stooped to wash their feet. But he knows that in just a few hours, Judas will hand him over to death and that Peter will deny even knowing him. So in this moment of prayer on the Mount of Olives, Jesus isn't only staring down the agony of his death. He's also facing the sting of betrayal. He's preparing to be abandoned by the very people he has promised to love the most. It's an isolating moment, which is a foretaste of the fact that he's going to die, and he's going to die alone. Now, if you've ever experienced this kind of betrayal before, then you can probably understand why Jesus' sweat turns to blood here. If you've ever suffered physically, you can probably understand why he prays, Lord, let this cup pass from me. This was Jesus' assignment from God, his vocation, his calling, to experience the full gamut of human suffering in all of its physical, but also mental, emotional, and spiritual dimensions. And that is what he's staring down in this moment of prayer on the mountain. Even the name Gethsemane, the name of the garden where he prays, is a word that means oil press. Now the oil making process at that time involved crushing olives with huge stones and grinding them into a pulp and then bearing down on that pulp until it released all of its liquid. So it's appropriate that in this place Jesus prepares to be crushed for us to make, in the words of the prophet Isaiah that we heard earlier this morning, to make his very soul an offering for guilt. Here on the Mount of Olives we see that the messianic king of the triumphal entry is also the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. Now this is not what the crowds expected when they hailed Jesus with their palm branches, and it's definitely not what they wanted. But that's understandable really. It's counterintuitive that the conquering hero would cast himself in the role of victim. But this is the surprising nature of God's power. And it's one of the things that makes him unique. Our God is unique among all religions of the world for this reason. It means we have a God who understands our pain, not abstractly, not just conceptually, but concretely who identifies with us in our grief by entering into it himself. And it means that Jesus' death was not only the purchase of our redemption, it was also the greatest and most intimate act of solidarity with us in the nightmare of human suffering. As I was researching this text, I came across a story from a Catholic priest who was invited to preach on Jesus in Gethsemane in the very church where uh, 
Christians now gather to worship on the Mount of Olives, where they believe Jesus prayed those thousand years ago. And during his homily, while he's preaching about Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane, there's a woman in the congregation who's just weeping during his homily. So he approached her afterwards and asked about her tears. And she told him that her son was battling for his life with mental illness and that her tears flowed because of the hope she found in the fact that Jesus also suffered silent and inward torment of the mind. Friends, Jesus is not only our priest in suffering, he's our companion. Here's how another pastor put it. This is Edward Shilito, who was a free church minister in England uh, during World War I, and his ministry was largely to soldiers and their families. And in his poem, Jesus of the Scars, he wrote this. If we have never sought, we seek thee now. Thine eyes burn through the dark, our only stars. We must have sight of thorn pricks on thy brow. We must have thee, O Jesus of the Scars. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds only God's wounds can speak, and not a God has wounds, but thou alone. God's wounds are a sign of his solidarity with us, and they are a source of his authority in our lives. Friends, Jesus will never ask you to go where he has not already gone. He's not giving orders from the cheap seats. So when he calls you to take up your cross, He's simply calling you to get in line behind him. Now, in case we think this makes him some kind of masochist, we need to remember that Jesus himself pleaded with God to be delivered from suffering. Lord, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. And in doing this, Jesus models for us the kind of vulnerability that a lot of times we'd rather not even risk. What I mean is, it's much easier to suppress our longing than it is to name it, knowing that it might go unmet. It's much safer to be stoic than to admit that we're desperate for something. But Jesus puts himself out there. He is unafraid to expose his desire before God, even though he knows the answer might be no. Let this cup pass from me, yet not my will but yours be done. And isn't it interesting that God sends an angel to minister to him, not to rescue him from the cross, but to strengthen him for it. Jesus cries out for deliverance from the cup of suffering, and God's response is to send him an angel. But the angel doesn't alleviate Jesus' struggle. In fact, the angel somehow intensifies the struggle. Look at verse 43. It says, And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. We don't know what words exactly were exchanged between Jesus and his father after the angel came. But we do know that sweating blood can really happen to people experiencing extreme stress or trauma. It's a very rare condition that's believed to relate to the body's fight or flight response. So Jesus wrestled with this assignment from God. He struggled. And in his obedience, he was strengthened. 
And as those who follow Jesus, God wants the same for us. He invites us into the same prayerful honesty that Jesus modeled. He invites us to be vulnerable, to cry out to him, and even to plead for what we want, and then to be strengthened to do his will no matter what. This is what Jesus wanted for his disciples too that night on the mountain, and it's why he invited them to join him in prayer. Not once, but twice in the story, Jesus urges them to pray as he does. In verse 40, he says, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. In Mark's account, he makes this request three times. But of course, the disciples still don't follow through. Even Peter, the one who moments ago promised to go with Jesus to prison and to death, even Peter can't stay awake and watch with Jesus for one hour. In light of Jesus' faithfulness, we begin to see the extent of our failure. We begin to realize that our good intentions aren't the same thing as obedience. Holy Week reminds us that what's true of Jesus' disciples is true of us. Our spirits may be willing, but our flesh is weak. As the author of Hebrews put it, In our struggle against sin, we have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. In our frailty, and sometimes in our sorrow, we'd rather just go to sleep. But where all humanity has failed to be faithful, Jesus alone passes the test. In the face of ultimate temptation, he resisted to the point of shedding his own blood. And so in this way, Jesus in Gethsemane shows us another important aspect of what's happening during Holy Week. The clue is that Gethsemane is a garden. You might remember that humanity's first test was also in a garden, the temptation to reject God's will and simply seize what we desire. Now our first parents failed the test when they listened to the serpent and ate the fruit of the forbidden tree. But here, Jesus does the opposite. He names his desire but then submits it to God. In this garden, we see humanity remade. In this garden, Jesus fulfills Adam's original vocation to steward creation in obedience to God. He exercises authority over satanic temptation and the weakness of his own flesh when he definitively says, Not my will, but thine be done. This is how the story begins to lift us up. As we grieve our sin this holy week, recognizing ourselves in the faithless disciples, we are also filled with gratitude for the one who is faithful on our behalf. We see that Jesus' costly obedience wasn't just for himself. It was for us. He drank the cup for us. And because he obeyed, because he was faithful even unto death, we can be brought back to life. Jesus fulfilled his vocation so that we could be restored to ours. By his wounds we are healed. And I hope you hear that this means much more than forgiveness. Jesus secures our forgiveness, yes, but he also changes us. He remakes us in his image, restoring our capacity to live as we were intended to live, so that we can follow him, so that we can take up our crosses and be faithful, even in our own moments of suffering. This is what Peter would go on to preach after this moment. 
after here being confronted with his own failure, after falling asleep in the garden, and then denying Jesus three times, Peter, the faithless disciple, would go on to encourage others to receive and walk in the new life Jesus had bought for them. In one of his later letters, he wrote this, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Here's what this means, and here's where I'll close. In the garden, Jesus showed us what obedience looks like. He embraced his assignment from God, not stoically, not with false optimism or cheerfulness, but in great humility. He said yes, knowing that it would hurt. And by his grace, we are given power to do the same. This Holy Week, you might be carrying an assignment from God that you don't want. Today or tomorrow or next year, you might be staring down a season that feels impossible and you don't know if you could be faithful in it. And on your own, you can't. But in him, you can. He will give you what you need to be faithful, to say yes to God, even in the face of great suffering. And when you feel alone in it, when you feel overwhelmed and isolated, and like nobody could possibly understand what you're carrying, remember Jesus. See him there, with you, on his knees, sweating blood and your isolation will become for you a place of intimacy a place of union with Christ in his suffering and in the power of his passion and if you let him he will teach you he will teach you how to remain vulnerable in the struggle how to ask for and receive the help of angels and of friends And he will teach you how to offer up your suffering in such a way that it becomes a gift, a ministry, a source of healing for others. This is the shape of the Christian life. It's the shape of a cross. It's not always pretty or easy, and it bears little resemblance to the power of positive thinking. But it's the only shape in the world strong enough to carry us. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.